Hello, everyone.、Uh, welcome to our first "Get to Know Your Professor" episodes. So, in this episode, we meet with Dr. Stephanie Valigo and Dr. Monty Alger.、Um, so, the main point of this、uh, ap- podcast is to get to know your professor a little bit better, so they seem、um, less intimidating for you、uh, as you're going through your chemistry career, because they are a big part of it. How do we know what professor to pick? But the first few will be the selection、uh, of the majority、uh, that people wanted. So we sent out a survey and then asked、uh, what professor you want us to bring on to the podcast and talk to them.、Um, so these questions、uh, that we're gonna ask are from a survey that we sent out. That on the same survey that we sent out to the Camp E population. So. Uh, why don't we begin by introducing yourself?、Uh, what class you taught in the past, and why you like、uh, why you like Penn State,、um, Stephanie? Sure. Yeah. So、um, I've taught a number of classes in the department, including material balances, the second thermodynamics three twenty, teaching fluid mechanics right now, and I have a chemical engineering elective for twelve chemical engineering in the environment. I like teaching at Penn State because it is a state school, and I like teaching.、Um, I actually like teaching a large number of students. It gives us a diversity of student experience, and I always get very inspired seeing、um, seeing the students. Sometimes they struggle a little bit in some of these classes, and yet I know they're just going to have a great、uh, future. And then I get to hear about that as they go through, and it's so inspiring to me. Yeah, that that's awesome.、Um... So,、uh, how about how about you, Monty? Yeah, I've been、um, developing a course. It's evolving over many semesters. On call it problem solving. I have I worked in industry for a number of years, and I know how the industrial world works. And I've gotten to know how the academy works, and I'm trying to、uh, create a class that bridges those two worlds to get people and companies to know students and interact more, and get students to understand what the world's like. And、uh, every semester it changes a little bit. I get feedback and ideas and suggestions. And more recently, I'm, I'm president of AICHE this year, and we're trying to build some of these ideas to make it a, a, a more of a, a shared activity that we can do across multiple schools and companies. It's awesome. Um, so, um, so then we will go through a list of questions that we compile from. Uh, students,、um, and then we will get the answer from you guys. So the first question the student has: Where did you get your undergrads, and why did you choose chemical engineering? That's a、um, a very interesting question、uh, for me too, Monty. Yeah, so I went to MIT as an undergraduate, and it was for me pretty simple because my family had a number of engineers that had gone there. And they were all electrical engineers. The reason I decided on chemical engineering was that in high school I I liked organic chemistry. I actually liked it when I took it in college too. I for some reason I liked organic chemistry, but I had heard from friends that you can't make money as a chemist and you have to get a PhD. So I decided chemical engineering must be good. And it, sort of an interesting aside is my great uncle was the dean of engineering at Penn State. And I learned that because I was walking down, walking through campus one day, and I saw a name on a, on one of those plaques, saying John Price Jackson. And I thought that sounds familiar. And it turns out my great uncle was 
my great-grandfather's brother, and they're both electrical engineers, and one was at MIT, one was at Penn State. Awesome. Um, Stephanie? Sure, yeah. So I went to Drexel University, and um, I, why did I choose chemi? You know, it's not very clear to me in my memory. <laughs> I thought I wanted to be a pharmacist in high school because I loved chemistry um, and math, and I think that's kind of, you know, uh, typical, but then I realized I'm really bad at memorization. And as I was doing these college tours, I realized, boy, I think I'd have to memorize a lot of things and I'm not good at that. And it was actually a great uncle also, um, just like Monty had a great uncle who was an engineer. Actually, he was one of the first environmental engineers ever in the 1960s. And um, we were at a reunion, I'm not even really sure. And he mentioned about engineering. And I also uh, went to a high school program. I think it was probably for girls. And I heard someone talking about chemical engineering. So it was a bit of a fluke, I guess, that I figured this out. But it really, once I got there, I realized it was a great choice because it didn't require that I memorize things. And I was really good at problem solving, which I didn't realize until I got there. So it was really a great fit. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I just want to add, want to add, um, I have this similar thought process when I choose chemical engineering. Uh, I was kind of good at chemistry, and then uh, I wanted to kind of apply that to like industry. So I choose chem E for for that reason. Um, but after I get to chem E, I realize it's not too much about chemistry. It's more about you know how to process those chemicals. But it works out fine. Um, I yeah I enjoying you know doing the class and. It's a, it's a great program. So to add to that question, what do you think is the hardest Camp E class during your uh, undergrad career? Yeah, so um, for me it was um, mass transport and it wasn't so much the topic as it was the way that it was taught. So we had a guest person, someone who wasn't from the department teaching it, and um, she decided to give no partial credit. So we'd have four or five problems total. And you know the kind of problems we're talking about, right? It takes a whole page to solve it and no partial credit. So if you got even, I remember one time it must have been a cylinder. And so there was an R squared involved and I forgot to carry it through. So I had it there then, you know, writing it over and over again, I dropped the R squared and I got minus 25 points, 25%. So, you know, I was a pretty strong student. So to have that happen, to go into the final with such a bad score was very devastating. So I do understand when students get upset about the grades. Um, even though in retrospect, I realized that that was all only a small blip in my life, but in the moment it didn't feel like that. And then the department had actually suggested that I ask her if she could put multiple choice answers. So at least we knew if we got it right. So if we made a small error, it would show up because we would not get one of the answers. So I did raise my hand in class and very nicely asked if she would be able to make her life easier, right? Anyway, so if we would be able to have multiple choice answers and she said, sure. So she did that for the final and I studied really, really hard and actually um, let go of some of my other classes, which is a regret because I was so concerned about this class. And I remember the final, I nailed it. I mean, I think I got, you know, got it all right, but I still ended up with a B, which at the time was devastating. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I learned from that as a teacher that, that partial credit is good. Um, and, uh, but I also learned that, you know, sometimes you got to deal with that. I mean, the department head was not willing to change 
or do anything. You know, I just had to adapt and figure out a way around that, which I did. Um, so unfortunately that was my hardest class, not probably because of the content. Wow. That that's such a good ex experience. I would never thought like professor would, would do the same thing, but at the same time it makes sense. What do you think, Monty? Uh, so what do you think is your hardest uh, chemi class that you took when you were undergrads? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. I, I don't recall the hardest one. I, I, I sort of have these recollections of there were these periods of darkness followed by moments of enlightenment when certain concepts would uh, sort of dawn on me. And thermodynamics, you know, the second law, entropy, mass balances, and insight. It, it, sometimes there were these flashes of insight. And my recollections are more about some of the people who taught classes. I remember I had some professors who were just absolutely captivating and fascinating. And some of the, the way they shared things and told stories and, you know, connected sort of engineering to, to real life problems. One class I remember in particular was my freshman year. It was a new course at MIT. It was called 1010. It was Introduction to Chemical Engineering. It was taught by uh, Mike Moore. He was, he was actually working Arthur D. Little. And he made this course up as we went, went along. And it was just incredible fun because he brought in all these case study problems from his work. And then we used those as chemical engineering examples. And I always... And that, that has stuck with me my entire life to have this idea of real problems, but illustrating how do you apply basic engineering thinking to solve and frame them out. Thinking about not just the science and engineering, but also the economics and the business, the business model. Yeah, that's a great answer from both of you. For me, if I haven't talked to a professor, I don't know, you know what they go through when they were undergrads, so I would not think... <clears throat> they will have this similar experience that we had, but at the same time, it makes sense because back then they were still students and some professors are not, you know, are different from the others. So um, from what I get as professor is vital to, you know, the education uh, that you get. So, yeah, that's great. Um, so the second question for uh, both of you is, uh, why did you choose to pursue uh, uh, your PhD? Um, I actually decided to pursue my PhD because of my co-op, which is kind of funny. Usually you don't think about it that way, but I did, um, at Drexel, we did three co-op rotations that were six, month, six months each, and all of mine were done at DuPont. Um, the first one was done at a semi-works plant. Actually, the first two were done there, and there weren't too many PhDs there, but there was a PhD chemist that ran, I think, the NMR machine. And I would take samples up there and talk to him. And I was really fascinated with how it worked. And so I think after talking with him and recognizing what what PhDs did versus what people with a bachelor's did, um, I became really interested in asking more questions and digging deeper than um, in somewhat trying to fix the problems that were occurring. And so for my very last co-op experience, I went to the experimental station, which is in Delaware, and that's where all the central R&D was done for DuPont. And I was fortunate to be able to get a co-op down there. And down there, it primarily was PhD chemical engineers working, and we were working on trying to make PETE, so a better process for making plastic or plastic bottles. And that really opened my eyes to this idea of asking bigger questions and doing these experiments 
And even though it was applied research at the time, it was very inspiring to work with people with a PhD and realize that that's really what I wanted to do. And it wasn't just the co-op, but it was what I tell students is it's also the way you think about the things you're being taught in the class. So often in chemical engineering, we give you kind of just a surface level understanding of, of these concepts. We might give a bit of a derivation, but to cover the kinds of things we need students to do, we don't always get all the way down to the core of where that came from. But I always wanted to know more about it. Well, where, where did that come from? Why is that? Why are we using that rate constant? Or why are we, where did that equilibrium constant come from? Or who discovered that? And those are the kinds of questions that you can ask when you're in a graduate program. And those are the kinds of answers that you get. Um, and so to me, that's what I tell students. If you're sitting in a class and you are thinking, well, I want to know more about that, or you're the one kind of going up to the professor at, after and asking more questions. Um, I was always one of those students that always wanted, I had to ask questions or I couldn't move forward. If I got stuck on something I didn't understand, it was very difficult for me to keep paying attention because I don't get that, I don't get that. And so because that was the way I was, uh, that is what made me go to graduate school. But I never entered undergrad thinking that I would get a PhD. I only ever knew one person who ever had a PhD growing up and he taught math at a local college. Um, so for me, it was really a great unknown and I, and I didn't understand the rules of graduate school at all either. So that's something that I've really tried to do is talk to students about graduate school because a lot of students just don't know anything about it. And so, um, and I didn't either, I was a bit clueless. So <laughs> I hope that I can um, let students know about these opportunities so they, they won't be as clueless as I was. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's awesome. Um, what do you think, uh, Monty? So why did you uh, choose to pursue uh, your PhD? Yeah, I think um, similar to Stephanie's comments, it, it really was tied up with this whole question of what do I do next? So I was, I went, MIT has a program called Chemical Engineering Practice School. So I, I was attending, I, I went to that program where it's essentially uh, one month working in industry. And I was talking to my undergraduate advisor and he said to me, he said, you should get a PhD. I said, really, why? And we talked about it, he gave me some reasons. And I said, so then I said, where should I go? He said, well, you could stay here at MIT or why don't you go to Berkeley? And I said, well, I don't want to go west of the Mississippi. So he said, how about Illinois? So I didn't know that much about Illinois. And actually it's sort of tied up with a, an, another thread in my life, which is uh, I played a trombone. And one of the things I've done at, at MIT is there was a, uh, I, I played, played in a bunch of groups there. I was a director of music there, Herb Pomeroy. And Herb actually was taught at Berkeley School of Music. And he was, he just came over to MIT because he was fascinated by the engineers. And he used to call MIT the science factory. He called Berkeley the music factory. Anyway, I went back and I asked, I asked Herb, I said, do you know about music at any of these universities? And he actually said, yeah, Illinois has a great program. There's a guy, John Garvey who uh, leads the jazz program there. So he knew him. And so I looked into it and I actually, that's a lot of the reason, well, let me be careful. That's part of why I decided to go to Illinois because I'd heard about this. And actually when I was there, I had a phenomenal time and I was involved in a lot of music there. And it was, uh, actually Herb was the one who sort of put me onto it. 
that's awesome to hear the story how you um, choose your uh, PhD school um, but uh, a follow-up question for for Stephanie um, so would you encourage a student to ask question in the class or after class um, yeah that's a great question oh, yeah. I I uh, I really do like students asking a lot of questions I, I think that like I said, if a student gets stuck in something and we're at the first 10 minutes of class, I think sometimes it's really hard for students to move on from that because we usually within the class, we're building on those key concepts. And so if a student doesn't understand a concept from the beginning, it's really hard uh, to build that model in your head when that first piece doesn't go. So I do encourage students to ask questions in class. I think if I feel like a student is asking too many questions, which very rarely happens, it has happened before. You know, I'll usually just hold on a minute because there are a lot of students in the class and we need to be a little bit careful, but I don't know. I'm somebody who really thinks questions are important and because everybody thinks differently. So if I'm explaining something in a certain way, that's the way I think, but that is not the way that everyone else might think. And so my goal is that students learn, not that I just keep talking. <laughs> so, um, but I also understand that it's really hard in a big class to make yourself vulnerable by asking questions although i often find that when someone asks a question the rest of the class usually nods and they understand that um so i i really do encourage but i also i remember there was a class i taught i guess it was thermo and there were two um students that would come up almost every day after class with their notes and they would okay this part what happened here what happened here and that was okay they were just they just weren't able to do that within class. They they felt more comfortable doing it after class. And I really appreciated that they, I mean, at least I, I knew they were paying attention, you know, and they would just say, okay, how'd you go from here to here? I don't understand what this is. And so I think whatever you're comfortable in, maybe it's even in office hours, um, although those are usually reserved for homework questions, but no, I think that's really important. Um, so yes, absolutely, 100%, I encourage students to ask questions. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, what do you think, Monty, um, about asking questions in class or after class? I'd say same thoughts as what Stephanie shared. It's, I think it's great to have questions in class. Just sometimes it, it turns into one person trying to, trying to figure something out. You don't want to do that with, you know, with the whole class sometimes. So sometimes it's good to take it offline a little bit. But I think the, the bigger thing is how do you get discussion going in class? Sometimes when you're going through content or lectures, maybe a little harder, but where there are problems or ambiguous ambiguous questions or, or problems we're working on in class, that's where having discussion is really helpful. And I, I found it with Zoom, the, the, the thing I struggle with Zoom is, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the old Brady Bunch, you have this sort of this panel of faces at the beginning of the show. You look at the Zoom screen and there are all these, you know, students looking at you and getting people to talk and interact on Zoom, it's, it's not easy to do. It's um, it's just not natural, and I, whatever ideas the students have or suggestions you 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 guys have for how do we create more informed interaction and discussion, I think it'd be really great to learn how to do that. But make it bi-directional because it's not just what I think. It's you know what's gonna what's gonna be most helpful or helpful for students. I think yeah. one way to do that is these breakout rooms, but then. The faculty aren't always in there, though sometimes I sneak into the breakout room and interrupt their discussion. And their cameras are on and they're talking and yeah. it's so exciting. And then they shut down as soon as they see me. So I'm like, no, keep going, keep going. This is great. Um, so I think I, I agree. I mean, being able to. So when I uh, teach material balances, I I flip my class. And so in, 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 a, in a 
normal face-to-face -face time, that's great because students are talking with each other and then if they have a question, they can raise their hand and I can come over, the TA or IA can come over and talk to them. And, and that is great because if a student gets stuck, that's when they have their questions. So the goal is to get them stuck, right? <laughs> and then they learn when they're stuck because you come over and talk to them. And so trying to replicate that on Zoom, sometimes I'm, I'm successful at doing that and sometimes not as much, but I think the more we can do that, that's that's really how students learn is by making mistakes and then and then we help them out of the hole, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Zoom uh, um, give us like a lot of challenges for both learning and, you know, for you guys teaching. Um, so, yeah, definitely we are trying to adapt to this. Okay, so... But I, but I, but I think, I mean, again, this is important because I think this is where students you should get together and talk about how do we best create this environment. So just, just a week ago, I went to a friend of mine's uh, his, uh, birthday party. So his wife scheduled a surprise Zoom call with all of his grad students and a few colleagues. There were probably, I think there were 60 of us on a Zoom call. It was fantastic because everyone knew each other or, or we all knew enough of each other to be able to talk openly and freely. There weren't any barriers and it was just, it was just fun. And now, well, a class isn't just supposed to be, it's not a social event just to, you know, have fun. Anything we can do to make it more interactive or more engaging, I think would be, be a, a huge step forward. And so I think of Zoom as sometimes it's a barrier. It can also be an enabler for creating different venues and different ways to connect and share and think about things. I, I definitely agree with the, with the idea of um, making, make the class more interacting because um, if a professor, for in my opinion, if I have a professor who just um, talking the whole um, the whole class, I wouldn't get a break in between, and that would be a lot of information to take in without break. Um, I feel like that would be less efficient than, let's say, if the professor asks a question and then give us maybe like two or three minutes to think and then answer the question. That will give us. I guess I'll bring a little mental break, which I feel like that will be a uh, a good part of it. Um, so we're gonna move on to uh, next question. So the next question is, what is your favorite undergrad's memory? Uh, Monty, what do you think? Well, so many memories and experiences. I, I, I thought about this one and I wanna, share one thing that sort of ties into some of the previous comments the something that stuck with me my freshman year I walked into the cafeteria to uh, have lunch I noticed in one of the back corners there was an older person sitting eating eating alone so I went over and introduced myself and said do you mind if I join you for lunch and he said no so we started talking he was just wonderful we had talking and I, I said I'm Monty Alger and he said hi I'm James Killian and I said oh, is that the Killian Court? It was MIT at Killian Court. And it turns out he'd been the president of MIT. And he actually was a, a, a very, very accomplished person. He was just the most wonderful person to talk to. I had such fun at lunch. And he told me about World War II, research at MIT, and some of the challenges and some of the initiatives he'd, he'd gotten going. And what I learned from that, what stuck, has stuck with me my entire life the only difference between a student and a professor or a senior person is U plus 40 years. 
And so you think that old people don't know anything about being a young person. The, the fact is, it's probably not true. But more importantly, there's just this wonderful exchange that can happen with youth, with enthusiasm, and someone who has experience. And having those connections and getting to know people and, and being able to share different perspectives, I think is extremely valuable. And I was so impressed by how approachable he was and how down to earth he was. And over the years, I've had many similar, many similar discussions with people um, in the same way. And, and so I, this, this has led me to believe that at the university, you, you just don't want to think of the university as a place to come and take classes and get a degree. You want to reach out, you want to engage people, you want to get involved in activities, meet people, both your senior and junior, and learn from them and develop a network uh, that will be a lifelong network um, through your whole whole life. Yeah, those are some great points. Yeah, I really like the idea of uh, teachers should be more approachable and then make the university be somewhere you can learn stuff rather than just getting a degree and then leave. Um, so, what do you think, uh, Stephanie? Uh, what do you? What, what's your favorite undergrad memory? Yeah, um, so I just want to comment on Monty saying I think that uh, <laughs> I've seen Monty do that other times as well, go up to strangers <laughs> and talk to them. You know, I think these these moments are so important. You know, there are these moments where you just decide I'm going to go sit with this person or I'm going to talk to this person. Or I'm going to do this one thing and it changes the trajectory of your life, you know, so I, I think that's beautiful just to look for those moments and to have the courage to go do something that could change your life. Um, so one thing this is, so I'm going to talk about something that's not as professional, but when I was an undergrad, I decided to join the sailing team. Now I had never sailed before. I'm not sure I had even been on too many boats, to be honest. Now thinking about that, but a friend of mine in the dorm said, do you want to go to the sailing meeting? And I thought, sure. And it did, it changed, it changed my life. At least for that time, I joined the sailing team. We would go to regattas every weekend and, um, you know, obviously learned to sail and we would go to, uh, Miami over the winter break to, to a tournament down there, regatta, and then in an RV and then go to Key West for New Year's Eve. It was quite an adventure. And what I loved about it was getting away on the weekends and doing something that was completely different and adventurous. And I think that's, that was important for me to have those adventures. And I remember coming back and I had a friend that I would study with and do homework with, and I would just tell her all these stories of it being too windy or not windy enough or whatever it was. And so I really enjoyed that. And the other thing I enjoyed doing in undergrad, this isn't really a memory, but I guess it's more fun things that I enjoyed was I had a part-time job selling food at the train station. <laughs> and um, whenever I was stressed out, I would call my parents and they would say, well, why don't you quit that job? You know, I was making whatever I was making, you know, minimum wage or something. And I would say, no, that's the last thing I'm going to do. That's my break. You know, that's where I get a break from all this. I come back from that feeling and I was working with all kinds of people there and customers and I was really good. You know, we'd have like this one piece of quiche left and we're trying to get rid of it. So I was really good at selling whatever was left, you know, somebody would come in. Oh, I don't know what I want. Have this quiche because we're trying to get rid of it. You know? so be careful when people are trying to sell you food. They're trying to get rid of something old. Um, but yeah, so to me, I don't know, those were favorite memories because they gave me a break. And now I know from research that that's so important for learning is to take a break get in the diffuse mind, take a walk, do something totally different and come back and, and be able to approach approach the learning from a new place. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, a 
break is definitely um, very useful for, I guess, for both uh, research, you know, and uh, taking classes because you can't, I, I, I guess my brain just doesn't function that well if I do four hours of heat balance or something like a thermodynamics. So a break in between, it's, it's a necessity, definitely. Um, so our next next question is, um, what are some of the hobby you enjoy doing outside of teaching? So um, Stephanie? Sure, yeah. So I enjoy um, a lot of outdoor activities, even more so now with <laughs> with our pandemic here. But um, so probably the biggest one is running. So I enjoy running and I'm part of a running club. And I'm, I know I'm getting to your next question or another question here, but over the break, I've done a lot of hiking around the area. And I also bought an inflatable paddleboard which is great. So um, I've been visiting some local lakes and, and learning how to do paddleboarding, which has been wonderful. Wow. That, that's great. The winter is coming, though. It might <laughs> hope, hopefully uh, the lake doesn't froze up. But yeah, it the lake still be might cold. be done. But hiking and running, I can continue through the winter. Yes, yes. Oh, what about you, Monty? A couple things. One, when I already mentioned music, I started early in age, early life, playing trombone. And I, in high school, I played in the Louisville Youth Orchestra, and then I, when I went to MIT. I played in Herb's band there. And when I went to Illinois, I played in a number of different groups out there. The reason I bring this up is because I made a lot of friends and got to know people who were not engineers. Uh, many of them were musicians. And when you get to know people in different fields, you learn lots about them, how they think and how they do things. And it was a it was a wonderful experience because I learned a lot about how the world works, how other people think. I got a chance to go play in a lot of places. And there used to be this group up in Chicago. It, it, in Illinois, there was Champaign-Urbana, Illinois was sort of the crossroads of jazz in, in Illinois. There was the Chicago group, they'd migrate to Chicago. And then there was this community down there. And I, I once in a while, I got the sub in a group called Jazz Members Big Band up in Chicago. And it was just incredibly fun to meet these people. And many of them been on the road and, you know, just incredibly accomplished musicians. But the thing I found was that a lot of engineers actually were also musicians. There was a crossover. And it goes back to my comment about Killian a few minutes ago is, it's so important in life to get to know different groups and be, be, be part of those groups and learn, keep, learn about their practices and thinkings because it'll make you a much better, smarter, capable person in the world. And especially in today's world where they, there's you know, networking and having these large social networks today, it's, it's so important to, to, to know and appreciate how different people think because they will not only help you learn new things, they will help you think in new and different ways and when you're trying to solve problems or you're stuck, very often they can provide a perspective that you might not have if you're, if you're just thinking sort of a, sort of a, 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 a just, just from an engineering or science perspective. Yeah, that's great. Um, what, do, do you still play um, the tram, tram, trombone, I guess? Yeah, actually, um, I used to play a lot. When I was, work started at GE, I used to play in a Dixieland band. It was a, uh, there was a bunch of doctors and their trombone player died. So I joined 
and the best part was they're all physicians. And I remember one of them said one time, well, he's not, there was, we're being introduced. And he said, well, he's not a real doctor. He can't make anybody feel better. <laughs> Could have put me in my place. And over the years, I, I, uh, I, I haven't played as much recently. And so about 10 years ago, I decided to just play quartet. So I, I bought a Mac and Pro Logic and I started mixing some of my own music. And what I discovered was is it's actually, you can do a lot just, you know, playing parts and playing, recording yourself. What you also discover is that it's impossible to ever get anything to the point you'd want anyone else to hear it because you hear all the flaws, the intonation problems and the mistakes. And so it's, 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 it's this event that I hold private to myself with all kinds of files and things that I, I've recorded, but um, it's something that I continue to pursue. Nice, nice. <laughs> Um, we'll move on to our next question. Um, so we talked about the hardest uh, chemistry class you guys think, um, but what about your favorite uh, class, Stephanie? Sure. Uh, so yeah, I thought I thought about that question. So actually, I did a minor in chemistry, and sometimes people ask me about minors. And of course, it's a pretty easy minor to get with your chemical engineering. <laughs> so in retrospect, I thought, I'm not sure how important that was. But actually, what it did do for me is it forced me to take one extra class that I would not have chosen to take, which was inorganic chemistry. So sort of the chemistry of metals. And that ended up being a really interesting class for me. Um, I still have it. So I think the book was called Molecular Symmetry and something. I'm not in my office, so I can't read it out. But it was a small little book. And it really got to the heart of how these metals interact. And so, and I love that. I love getting to really the heart of something and understanding from a molecular level why something does what it does, why these molecules do what they do. That, that's really like, once I get to that level, I'm like, I got it, right? Again, there's no memorization. I can just logically figure it out from the electrons, the protons and the neutrons. And so for me, that ended up being one of my favorite classes and it was not one I would have picked if I hadn't thought to do this minor. So even though in retrospect, I'm sure nobody cares that I got this minor in terms of <laughs> grad school or anything else, for me, what it did was force me to take a class I never would have taken and I did really enjoy it. Yeah, that, uh, that's really funny because I'm doing a chem minor too and uh, I didn't take inorganic chemistry, but I took two more organic, organic chemistry class. So I have like similar process, but for organic chemistry so but you do you like the classes more than you oh you I, oh yeah i'm actually doing research in organic chemistry right now so that's oh, that's, perfect. that's perfect yeah that that works out perfectly <laughs> um how about you monty what's your favorite uh class as a undergrad student um uh, yeah uh, well it's interesting as you get older you discover that there's more people younger than even older and so i, I i'd say the thing that was a was a highlight for me was not when I was in college. It was it was at UMass several years ago. They used to have a process design center. It was uh, Mike Doherty and Mike Malone and Jim Douglas, and they had this methodology, conceptual process design, which was a methodology for thinking about chemical plants and design, which just just transformational. I just loved it so much, and it's entirely it's applicable to just about any business. Or any anything you want to design it doesn't have to just be a chemical process but over the years as we were part of that center i remember i used to tell them i said you know when we talk when we hire students 
they lose their minds because they're used to thinking about y equals f of x but then we ask them to think about dollars and cents and they just they just come unglued and um so we, we talked about this and finally i said i'll make up i'll make up a business problem so i made up a business problem to use in the classroom and um i never forget the first lecture so i went over there to teach this business problem it was actually the monomer plant where i was working at the ge Merrill business it was uh making two six xylenol and i added in where students actually had to decide to invest money and based on how much money they invested there were certain technical outcomes so you had to do engineering analysis and so forth. and i had predicted that they were going to lose their minds and, and and be disoriented and sure enough we went through this I'll never forget Jim Douglas standing up to the board and said, I can't recreate exactly what he said, but he went up there and started talking about stoichiometry and mass balances saying, don't you people remember this is what you're supposed to do, A plus B equals C and so forth. And it, it illustrated the point of connecting the fundamentals to problems is really important. It's conceptually very hard to do. And that, that particular problem, I've actually still used to this day. Mike Doherty, I think, used it for over 20 years. Bill Bannels are actually started using it at Wisconsin. It's actually a particularly interesting problem. But I find that if, what I'm hoping we can do is start to create a lot more case study problems that need sound, excellent engineering analysis combined with business and other factors as part of learning. And I think these types of activities can be extraordinarily valuable and I, I had that one experience just at, at UMass when we used, used to run that problem there. And what I found over the years, what I found most, most gratifying is I will periodically hear with people I worked with or, or met years past and they call me up and they share experiences of how things we did in class or talked about made them think differently or pursue different, different activities in life. And, those are particularly wonderful experiences to have when you actually feel like you, you've helped somebody pick a direction and, and, and find something new to, uh, to um, consume their, their, their future. Mm, definitely. Um, what you described sounds like the class you are teaching right now. Yeah, well, it, it all derives back to that. And right now, I'm, I'm, I'm in this whole idea of energy transition. There's so many practices that I learned working in GE. We used to, we used to look at improving manufacturing globally and we would benchmark and share data and some of the techniques of six sigma were ex extremely transformational and so we're trying to apply some of those ideas now to build out a, a different way to think about energy and energy transition engaging students and companies um, through AICHE. Lots, lots of things that are that are just getting started on. Well, last question uh, is did you pick up a new hobby over the quarantine? I think uh, Stephanie talked about uh, yeah. Uh, so what did you pick up um, during the over the quarantine? Oh, yeah. So I mentioned uh, my paddle boarding, which has been really great um, and actually really good problems on air compressors for like <laughs> up that paddle board, too. So got some engineering in there. <laughs> and the other thing which I, I enjoyed but hadn't done at the same level was hiking and finding a lot of places. I mean, this is a beautiful place to hike. And we had we were supposed to go out to Zion. That was my Christmas present last year from my family to go take a trip out to Zion. They know how I enjoy that. And we were hiking. Um, there's a there's a hike called Indian Steps. Beautiful lookout in Pennsylvania, very local within 20 minutes. And as we're doing that hike, I thought we can just do this here. You know, as beautiful as Zion is, I, I recognize, boy, we've got a lot of, I've been here a long time. And 
and had not been to all of these hikes. And so there's still more that I have on my list. And, and so that was just a real benefit of, of being able to get out there. And I love learning new things, new places. That's sort of part of this adventurous spirit that I have. Um, so, you know, trying to discover new things and find new places to hike and challenge myself in new ways. I think has been great. And um, even locally, we have a game lands. If you've ever been there, it's a really large area of forest that people do some hunting in and learning some of these trails. I've gotten mm -hmm. lost in there before, so I was a little hesitant, but I, and I've compared this a lot with students to learning. So I've gotten to know some trails and some landmarks within this huge forest. And so now I have the confidence to go off on a trail that I've never seen before knowing that I'll get back to something that I know well. And I, I explain this to students when they feel stressed out in a test or they know that they're off on some unknown, especially in a test, when we're giving you a, a, a problem you've never seen before. And students get very stressed when they see that, especially if it doesn't come to them right away how to solve it. And I use the analogy of being on this new path you know, you imagine you're on a hiking path that you know very well, and then you decide, I wonder where this goes, and you go off on this side trail. And it can be very unnerving to not know where you are or how you're going to get back to something that is familiar. And that's how students feel when they're solving a problem they've never seen before, especially on a test. And yet, when you build the confidence of knowing, if I'm on this trail that I've never seen before, I have the confidence of knowing I'm going to get back to something that I've seen before. And that comes with confidence. And that's what I've learned during the quarantine is I've been on enough, I've spent enough time on the trails that I do know. That's important also to, to create those, those trails and those memories of I know this, I know this. And then to have the confidence to go off of that a little bit and know that I'm gonna get back to something that I know. And so I try to use that analogy with students that when they're on this path, <laughs> when they're, we call it, um, if you, if you learn about learning, they call it the diffuse mind. If you're in the diffuse mind, you can be confident that you'll get back to this fixed mind, but it sometimes takes some time. And so what sometimes happens is when students are on these paths, these unknown, they get very nervous because they're not on something that feels comfortable, but trying to give them the confidence, like I feel on an unknown path. And, and that does feel unnerving sometimes. Sometimes I'm on that path for a while. <laughs> And I wonder if I'm ever going to get back to something that feels comfortable, but that comes with practice and doing it over and over again. And so I've started to suggest that to students is, you know, make yourself comfortable being uncomfortable and knowing, you know, I have the confidence that I'm going to get back to something. I'm going to get back to some equation that feels comfortable. So that that's been something where I've, I've found a new hobby, but it's led me back to something that hopefully can help students in their learning as well. Yeah. That's a great anal analogy. It's like, the trail you've been to is the fundamental you build up and then you use those knowledge to kind of navigate the unknown, um, you know, when you venture out to like somewhere in a different trail, but like have similar element to it and then you just apply what you learn and then you, you go from there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so what about you, Monty? Did you pick up a new hobby over the quarantine? I feel like you will be the person to actually get a lot of hobbies. Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't say I've picked up a new hobby. I've, I've changed my approach to some existing things I've, I've always been curious about. I think very, in some ways, similar to Stephanie. I, there's a, we have a house in New Hampshire. It's, it's been in the family now about 100 years ago. My father years ago told me, he said, an old house is no gift. 
our house here is built in 1823. And what I can tell you about an old house is you can put an infinite amount of money in and it still looks like an old house. And so I have one of my other hobbies is building. I like to build things. I've, we've bought a couple of houses and we moved around and fixed them up. And we're currently spending time fixing up our place in New Hampshire. But as a result of COVID, I've actually been in New Hampshire this fall more than I've ever been there in my entire life. And I know the history of the place. I know the property boundaries, the old stone walls in New England and so forth. But there's a new application on Hunt that I found. There's a hunting application for an iPhone. But what's interesting is it overlays property boundaries. So I've been walking around the woods here, and I actually know where all the property boundaries are for the first time in my life. I know whose land is whose land. And so I've been, I have old pictures of places, and I've been connecting old pictures to existing places. One just a couple of days ago, I was looking at, there's an old Model T station wagon, a 32 station wagon that's out in front of my wife's uh, parents' house down the road 70 years ago, 800 years ago. And I found it in the woods. It's all taken apart like the scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. And so I've been taking pictures of it, inventorying it, now sharing it in an Apple uh, or a shared share folder, just, you know, the different people using the Apple shared, shared albums. And it's just been fascinating to take some of these technologies we have today because you can you can do so much more to learn and explore the facts and you know things that I've I've been interested in over the years. And so those are those are some of the things I've been I've been doing uh, most recently. That's great. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, as a student, uh, I didn't pick up uh, a new hobby. I was just going through works and stuff. So, but I try to do more of drawings and stuff. So, um, quarantine has uh, kind of give us more time, but at the same time, it doesn't. Uh, it's not the same. Do you have any question for students, just in general? Like, you want to know something from like a student perspective, uh, Stephanie? Do you think? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I my question is, you know, we're trying to do the best we can to help students learn during quarantine. So my question is, what are things that faculty can do to help students connect with each other, to learn? Um, I know students are kind of, I'm sure, having some struggles just in terms of all these changes. What can faculty do to help students? Yeah, I don't think I can come up with the uh, <laughs> answer on the top of my head. Um, but so what we can do is we can uh, send out another email or something uh, to ask the student to get some feedback from them um, if I feel like that would be a, uh, a beneficial for both student and teacher so teacher can change the what they um, what they what the teaching method a little bit and then the student can benefit from that Absolutely. Um, yeah uh, how about you Monty do you have a question for you know student in general not a specific question, but I think would it be really interesting if you, get, you guys get together and start thinking about what would you like to know? What are some of the challenges you're facing in life? What, what things, if done, would be valuable or interesting from your perspective? And the one thing that resonates, go, go, keeps going through the back of my mind is this, this initiative we created, we call Career Discovery. It's about how you decide what you want to do. So after successfully getting old so far, I've discovered that nobody knows what they want to do in life. It turns out this is pretty much universal. I've met so many different people and always asked, 
how'd you decide what you're doing? How, what, what do you want to do? And I discovered that this question of what do you want to do is a wrong question. It's what might you like to do? And when you think about what you might like to do, I've been asking this now routinely of every single student. And the answers I get are just, it's fantastic. It's so interesting to hear some of the things I hear from students. And I think this idea of what might you like to do and how to learn about those activities and gain more insights from others to help shape your time, not just at the university, but as you enter the workforce, is really important, especially in today's world. And I have this discussion with all kinds of friends of mine that are working in different companies in different locations. And we talk about this quite a bit. And we have these really interesting, we have these really interesting talks. And I, I just think that if we can find better ways to connect people who have had experience with people who are just starting out in life and have totally open handed discussions, I think all sides will, win enorm will just benefit enormously. And I've started doing more of this. I, I had, involving this, having people call into class and give talks. And I've, I've asked them, I've, I, I've told them, I said, don't recruit, don't talk about your stupid company, talk about your own life. What did you do? Why did you do it? And what were the twists and turns and what did you learn? And there are so many incredibly interesting stories out there to learn and to be shared in this world of networking and technology. I think we can find so much, so many different ways to do this. On the flip side, you have to understand Students as a group, you are totally fascinating. Your minds are consumed with ideas and thoughts that no one had when I was young. And you bring up things to think about or ideas and questions to ponder. So I think the student of today needs to be much less the bird in the nest being fed worms to grow up, but be a, an accelerant for thinking and changing the way the workplace works. And to have students actually go out and help change culture and change thinking in companies, at the same time gaining experience and practice of how does the world actually work. And this is where I think we need to build a much better connected university workplace collaboration practices where the university helps infuse and it essentially puts you up to a higher thermodynamic state. The university you apply energy, it increases your, your, your uh, improves your, your thinking and you go out in the world and use these slots and acquire experiences whole different models that we need to consider. And I think students should talk about these things and come back with the ideas and, and things you'd like to see. And you, we can use that as a starting point for how do we start to build out new practices and collaborations that span uh, uh, all different markets uh, and organizations. Yeah. Yeah, those are some great points, um, you know, about um, how students to interact with each other and then have open discussion about you know what they want to do and yeah it's really great uh great point um and with that um i want to thank you uh thanks uh dr stephanie valigo and dr Mandy adger for coming to our podcast today um we learned a lot about you guys and then what you think about you know different aspect and then some of your personal hobbies and <clears throat> favorite per personal memories so i truly appreciate you taking your time to do the podcast thank you thank you enjoyed thank you. it have a great day bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.